Gage. And I'm Ray. And you are listening to Welcome to Chili's Core Report. <laughs> Not the Welcome to Chili's. <laughs> oh, the meme. The meme energy. It's very strong today. I sense or, it. I mean, I could have gone straight goblin energy and just went, Core Report. <laughs> there she goes again, giving Rumpelstiltskin vibe. <laughs> Rip Van Winkle. <laughs> So, hi everyone. We hope you're having a good day, a and good a week, good life. and a good life. That's our that's our new catchphrase here. We just hope you're having a really good life, enjoying your life. We definitely are, as usual, just you know, busy little bees. I guess there's not really a whole lot to report on. No, We've just been really. kind of. I've been yeah. just chilling. I'm well, in- I haven't been because my freaking car <laughs> is broken down. <laughs> And currently, right now, while we're recording this, I'm waiting on a tow truck right now. So it's it's yeah. Yeah, that is a, that is a little more more than shitty. It's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> I, I feel like I feel like I grab the stone from Dragon Tales and be like, I wish, I wish with all my heart that my freaking car would stop falling apart. <laughs> right. There's. It's I like, saw that meme on Facebook the other day, and I just every died. time like life stables out a little bit and things start chilling, it's like the universe goes like, okay, man. Oh, that's a nice car you have there. It'd be a shame if it just didn't start. <laughs> There's nothing worse than that shit. I know I know it's awful. It's so bad. It's so bad. As for me, I don't really have anything eventful. I've just been kind of chilling, playing lots of Animal Crossing, yeah. and I'm definitely enjoying that the weather is somewhat cooling down, kind of. Oh, my God. Thank yeah. God we're in fall now. And it, it hasn't been like... I mean, the days have still been sort of in the 80s, but it doesn't feel like it's in the 80s. It feels like it's much cooler, which I love. Yeah, so. especially at night. Like last night, I went outside to get something out of the car for my uncle, and I was just like, ooh, it's kind of chilly, and I'm, I'm loving it. Like, it's, my season's coming in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, at nighttime, oh, my God. Since, I love autumn. Since we moved the couches out of our living room, and we got a new set of couches, so we moved the old couches out of the living room mm-hmm. and put them under the carport. And I I told my mom, I was like, I could totally just take a nap out here, just lay down on the couch and just... Yeah, especially <laughs> if it's cool outside where there's no bugs, I'm no nothing. Like, you. I'm telling you, I'll be over there taking a nap with you. What do you mean? <laughs> well, both couch and the love seat are available. <laughs> <laughs> I love you so much. I'm happy y'all got that done, though. I know that's, like, much needed. And the new couch is just really nice. Like, it's really comfortable. I desire nothing more than to come to your house and slip and slam my (laughs) goblin body all over the couches. That's exactly what I'm going to do. Beware the mother. Yeah, I am scared of your mom. She might be be more badass than me, but she's not faster than me. I'm just... (laughs) Deborah, if you can hear this, I'm sorry. I love you. (laughs) And for our usual announcement, if you would like to stay tuned to the end of this episode, that's where me and Ray will announce all of our social media platforms so you can stay up to date and follow us and all of our weird weird so listen all the way through if you dare (laughs) if you dare if you dare i'm really ready to get into your case so we're gonna get into it like right now right now right now i'm ready (laughs) 
the case that I decided to cover this week is a pretty infamous one. Okay. And I'm kind of surprised that I didn't learn about this sooner because this took place in the late 1970s. So it's an old case. Okay. But uh, yeah, I just recently learned about it by name, like hearing about the case maybe like a year ago, but over the past month, maybe month and a half mm-hmm. is when I've really, you know, dove into the case and started like learning the details of it. And like, it's like I said last week with Joel and Lisa, it just consumed me. Mm. Like it consumed me. This case is infuriating. It's sad. It is oh, incredible. It is incredibly sad to me. Like there's multiple reasons uh, why I think it's so sad. There's several different perspectives and points of view that you can kind of put yourself in if you're mm. the type of person like I am that likes to analyze a situation from everyone's perspective and, and you like, you know, exploring those different pathways of thinking. It's just heavy. Like, mm. I can't stress that enough that it's just excruciatingly heavy. So the case that I'm going to be telling you guys about today is the case of Brenda and Spencer. <gasps> Ooh. Yeah. As I said, this case has many layers, many things to think about and process. And above all else, and more than one way, this case is an absolute tragedy. The shooting began around 8.30 a.m. A sniper was firing random shots at school children on their way to class at Cleveland Elementary. Eight children and two adults, the school principal and a custodian, were felled quickly. The principal and custodian would die. For a while, the sniper's 16-year-old Brenda Spencer kept police at bay, firing from her house across the street from the school at anything that moved. In January of 1979, the home of Brenda Spencer was located directly across the street from Cleveland Elementary School in San Diego, California. Okay. In the early morning hours of Monday, January 29th, 1979, a then 16-year-old Brenda Spencer opened fire and shot 36 rounds from her semi-automatic rifle into a group of Cleveland Elementary students, as well as some of the other staff members that were standing outside of the school directly from her home, because again, she was across the street. So when asked by authorities why she had committed such a cruel and vicious act, she left everyone with the very famous and eternally haunting response. I just don't like Mondays. What? Yep, that's, you know, it's famous. What? Uh, I don't like Mondays. And then she also went on to say it just livens up the day. So, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, no, okay. To begin telling you the story of Brenda, we can start with her early life. She was born to Dot and Wallace Spencer on April 3rd, 1962, in San Diego, California. Her and her three siblings grew up more specifically in like a little suburb, I believe, within San Diego uh, that was named San Carlos. Okay. Now, for obvious reasons, Brenda's three siblings kind of have their names redacted. So I don't have any names for you, but uh, Brenda does have one older brother, one older sister, and a younger sister. Okay. At a young age, Brenda's parents ended up separating, and Brenda went on to live with her father, while her other three siblings went on to live with their mother. From what I could find, and yes, it's pretty sad, I'm going to say that time and time again, giving that trigger warning now, like this is a sad case. Take a shot every time he says sad. You know, take a shot every time I say sad. <laughs> but there's, you know, there's mentions of sexual abuse. There's mentions of uh, drug abuse. There's mentions of, obviously, you know, children are involved in this. This is a school, a case of a school shooting. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot going into this. So just, you know, be prepared, you guys. But uh, yeah, back to Brenda's home life. Her and her mom did not have a good relationship at all. Oh, I uh, hate that. Dot was the kind of woman that she didn't really want to be present 
especially with Brenda. And the two just had a very tumultuous relationship. They didn't really communicate at all. Dot had very little to do with Brenda. It's like she just sent her to live with her dad and was just like, okay, like pretty much don't bye. exist to me. Yeah, bye, pretty pretty much. And it's, and it's sad. Uh, Brenda's younger sister was actually born after her parents had split up. Like Dot had remarried and had a daughter with this other man. So it's kind of like Dot just created this new life pretty much and went on about living it full throttle while Brenda was just kind of thrown to the side to be with her dad. Yeah, Like it's kind of a sad image to think about, or at least to me, I think it's deeply sad. Now, Brenda's life with her father definitely was not a happy one. Her dad was pretty poor and he was a pretty bad alcoholic I read that Brenda and her dad's house didn't really even have any furniture in it. What? Like, there was just a mattress, like a single mattress in the bedroom on the floor that both of them shared. Like her and her dad shared? Yes. They slept on a single mattress. Uh, Whiskey bottles and beer cans would be strewn everywhere, too. You know, it's it's like they, they lived in filth, too, basically. Okay. And, you know, that's not Brenda's fault. Yeah, but um, it's just another one of those sad images to think about. She did not have an easy time with her father. Brenda actually way later would state in 2001 that her father Wallace was sexually abusing her for years, which, as you can imagine, that definitely did not have a positive effect on her. Wallace, you know, he would go on to deny any and all of these allegations, but. I mean, it's sketch. And let me like insert this quick note, like specifically on the whole sexual abuse allegation that Brenda made. Let me just give a quick note to kind of add some momentum to that thought per se. You know, tell me if you think he did or not. But get this shit. One year after Brenda was arrested, Wallace went on to marry and have a child with a woman that looked so much like Brenda. You know, one of the detectives had been out and about and had seen Wallace and this woman together. And this detective called Brenda's lawyer and was like, how in the fuck did Brenda get out of jail? Oh, wow. Like, I just saw her. There's no way she should be out. Yeah. What? Yeah, it's messed up. And if that isn't, like, bad enough, Wallace knew this woman because she was Brenda's ex-cellmate. What? And the kicker, the even bigger kicker, is that this woman was one year younger than Brenda. What the? Yeah. No, I'm telling you. So, so... She was younger. The woman was 16. And looked so much like Brenda that a detective actually called Brenda's that lawyer. so gross. And was like, how in the fuck did she get out of jail, Ew. you know? So, like, I kind of believe Brenda because there's going to be some points in this story where you're not going to know how to feel. You're not going to know whether you believe Brenda or if you don't. But in this part in specific, mm-hmm. I believe her. And I believe her. It's so crazy to think about, too, because, you know, back during that time... No one was really talking about mental health. No one was talking about, uh, you know, like the child abuse and child sexual abuse. Like this was back in a time where, you know, they didn't really talk about the bad things of life. Yeah. It's like you're not depressed. You're just sad. You don't have anxiety. You're just anxious. And that's normal. Like that type shit pretty much. And that's very true. And I don't know. It's heartbreaking, especially with like this little note, because you with what you're saying about the time Brenda was in. She didn't really have anyone to talk to, or at least she and her mind felt like she had no one to talk to. And this is a case full heartedly to where I believe this was an explosion yeah, of sorts. And there's a lot, you know, going into it. But I, I mean, one person can only take so much of that. 
And I'm not in any way like going into this. I'll say you're going to hear me say it five more times. Probably. I am not defending Brenda Spencer because what she did was it was cruel. It was absolutely it was it was vicious. And there's no excuse from that. But like, I'm sorry, there are just numerous perspectives here that at least I can't help but take into account. And this is just one of them. And well, it, you know it is what it is. I don't. I don't think it's a bad thing to kind of like put yourself in her position, the things she's going through, because then you start to understand why people do things the way they do them. But you know, we'll just keep that preface here, so that way we're not repeating it. No, absolutely. And, you know, just so you guys know, we are never trying to like you know, glorify a killer or romanticize a killer. Never defend either. Right. It's just when you when you learn these, these cases and these stories, I mean, how can you look at it from just one perspective? There's literally so much. I and mean, you know the, they're still people. It's like is Brenda Spencer a born monster or was she created? Right. And in my mind I think she was created. Like after researching this, but you know, we'll get to that. It's just yeah. like it's just a good note of conversation to make here because it's it's important going forward. And going back to Wallace being with this uh, other woman, I believe it was only a year after Wallace had married her that she actually left him and left their child with him, too. So that's Brenda's half-sister, and her stepmom looks evidently just like her and is younger than she is. Like, wow. that, Like, what an image. <laughs> Don't mean to cut you off. I just wanted to, like, just say that when I was saying, you know, there's still people so people understand what I mean by that, and I'm clarify it. They they are still people who have real human emotion, real human thought processes. You know whether they have a mental illness or not. I mean, yeah. Like these serial killers, or you know, one shot killers, or they still experience the world through their eyes yeah and whether that be obviously a heavily distorted perception i mean they're experiencing their own set of human things right so that's what i was getting at we tend to dehumanize people who do stuff like this because you know obviously like how could anybody do that exactly you know no that's a very fair point but it it just it matters if this was a situation that was created that could have been avoided. And I, yes, and I 100% believe with all my heart that it could have been prevented. Yeah. That it absolutely could have been prevented. Okay, and moving uh, on. <laughs> I just wanted to, you know, get nah, that No, it's good. Like, if you've listened to us for a while, you know we're the deep delving type. And <laughs> <laughs> I, I just love analyzing from different points of view. And this is definitely one of those cases that really invite that, you know, multiple pathways of thinking. So, yeah. Another excruciatingly enraging fact about this specific part of Brenda's background, though, Brenda's mother, Dot, would later come forward, you know, after the fact of Brenda doing what she did. And she said herself, Brenda's mother, that she 100% had suspicions that Wallace was molesting and sexually abusing Brenda. But she said she didn't do anything about it because she couldn't afford a lawyer. Like That's what? That's not an excuse. Like, are you fucking kidding That's me? That's not an excuse. You can call the authorities. There's a number of things and it's like, you're a parent. Like, could you imagine like you have even just the hint of a thought that your child's being like molested or sexually abused in like a really horrific way. Can you imagine not doing something because you can't afford a lawyer? Like, are you kidding me? She's saying that to save face because she could sit there all day long and go, oh yeah, I have my suspicions, but like, really you weren't even around. You left her with this man 
without a care or a thought in the world. And now all of a sudden you find out that he's sexually abusing her and it's like, oh, oh, I wanted to do something about it, but I couldn't because ABC. Yeah. And it's ridiculous. Yeah, no, it's enraging. That's one of the very many enraging points about that. And it gives you a little bit of perspective into, you know, what Brenda was dealing with. This is her situation. These are her parents. Yeah. So going back to it all, I believe Brenda 100% on her claims of sexual abuse. I mean, with all the shit that she says and some things that come out in this case that I don't believe, this is one that I for sure believe with all my heart. Yeah. She would actually go on to say in her own words that the abuse she endured from her father actually kind of inspired her to like dress like a boy. Okay. And that's her own words. Don't at me, people. And that is also a normal reaction to sexual abuse. Yeah, I mean, it's sad. And if you see pictures of Brenda, she's she definitely has like this this image going on. She's always wearing really baggy pants, shirts, jackets, sweaters, beanies. You know, she has the big glasses, you know, all of that. It's like she wanted to hide herself as much as she could. It, it's and like, that totally makes sense. Given it's like the changing your appearance to be more masculine in a way to protect yourself. Exactly. And I mean, you also can take into account that her father was very poor. So it's also probably, you know, all she could afford. But it's like still. Right. Like either hand-me-down clothes or. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, either way, I mean, that's a note for the context. Yeah. And it's sad. And Brenda's school life would be no better than her home life. Uh, she definitely had a reputation for being the, quote, bad kid. At school, she would constantly talk back to her teachers. She would often have like these angry outbursts where she would get in trouble and she would yell and stuff. And mm -hmm. she didn't get along well with any of the other students. She was extremely introverted. There's actually a lot of students that went to school with Brenda that would, you know, later state that they remembered how introverted she was and that she just did not talk to anyone. She didn't want to be around anyone. She was just completely isolated pretty much. Yeah. Brenda's fellow students would also report that Brenda often talked about her hatred and hostility towards police officers, as well as her desire to kill one one day. Wow. Some other students also reported that Brenda also had this thing where she would constantly talk about wanting to do something big to get on TV. So I guess I can imagine these kids hearing Brenda say these things. They're thinking, you know, well, well, hell yeah. Like, you know, be an actress, be a rock star, right. you know, go do anything you want to do with your life. You know, get on TV, boo, if that's do what you want to do. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no one realized the brute reality of just how serious Brenda was about that, nor did anyone realize the morbid truth of what Brenda was actually going to do. And it gives me chills thinking about just being in a classroom with Brenda and you're hearing her say all of these things. And then later you see what she did that definitely got her on TV. Right. And, uh, you know, it's it's chilling. It's like in a lot of these cases, we see where there's often clear and present signs that something is wrong with someone leading up to events like this. And it's but one no of the, one look deep enough. And no one does anything. It's one of the things that saddens me like horribly. And no, again, I'm not defending Brenda. I will I will never defend what she did in no way. There's no justification for it. It was cruel and sad and more than senseless. But I'm going to continue to kind of invite you guys to have this additional way into thinking about it. You know, it's kind of foreshadowing of a bigger problem at hand that I think is important. Yeah. So before Brenda Spencer became that school shooter, the I don't like Monday school shooter, before she did what she did, she was just a 16-year-old girl struggling with her mental health in her life. And she was struggling with the abuse that she was enduring. And she was heard by other students talking about how much hatred and how much hostility she felt. And it's like, why did, why did no one help her? 
why did no one help her? It's like you made the point earlier. I believe that this could have been prevented if Brenda would have had the help she so desperately needed. Like there were red flags everywhere. And I'll bring up that point again. Before Brenda Ann Spencer gained the title of infamous school shooter, she was simply a teenager that just needed help. So now that I'm done with that small tangent, we can get back to the story at hand. Uh, Brenda had also in her early high school life, because she was a junior when this happened, she had started skipping school regularly. And she had also definitely started dabbling with various different substances, such as marijuana, stealing and drinking her dad's alcohol. She was smoking cigarettes, all of that. Brenda grew to be extremely depressed about how her life was going. She wasn't happy at home. She wasn't happy at school. She's developing these substance abuse issues way early on, too. You know, like the depression is really only worsening. And all of this combined was just, if I may put it into metaphor, because we all know that I love my metaphors, but uh, it's all a pretty dangerous cocktail. And Brenda's mental health was definitely declining steadily and severely. Yeah. And Brenda was also not the type of person to like talk about how she felt. I mean, it's like I said earlier, she didn't feel like she had anyone that she could talk to realistically. She, I could only imagine that if you have a parent that's sexually abusing you, you're going to lose that trust in, in people that, you know, if you can't trust someone like your parent, how are you going to trust anybody else to be around? So that's probably why she was like very closed off and introverted. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's sad, even more sad. Again, take a shot every time I say sad because it's like, you know, that wasn't her fault or her choice. Okay. You that- ready? Take another shot. Sad. <laughs> it wasn't her fault or her choice that that was the situation she had to live right. in, you know, and there wasn't much she could do about it. Like, again, you brought up the whole time period she was in, amongst other things. She just definitely, in a realistic sense, felt like she had no one. There was nothing she could do, nothing she could say. She just felt powerless. And she developed this other tendency to just kind of bottle everything up, as one does when they can't talk about things. And we all know that's very dangerous. Right. Because eventually you're going to implode. You're you're going to snap. And surprise, in case you were wondering, Brenda did in fact snap. I mean, it's like, hey guys, welcome to our true crime podcast where today we're talking about Brenda Ann Spencer. <laughs> you know, like she she definitely did snap. Now, a little more of a positive note in Brenda's life. There was a point where she actually did find a hobby that she really, really took a liking to. And that was photography. She actually took a photography class while she was in high school, and her photography teacher was actually probably, I think, the only teacher of Brenda's that actually had something nice to say about her, uh, saying that Brenda, quote, definitely possessed an eye for art and could go far with it if she chose to, end quote. Oh, that's so sad. I'm telling you, again, (gasps) (laughs) it's, it's, it's heart wrenching. Now, in 1978, Brenda actually did open up to one of her teachers about her depression and all of the intensely dark feelings and thoughts she was having. This teacher in particular was, I believe, the only one that Brenda actually trusted could have been her photography teacher, but I'm not 100% sure. And I mean, this was huge. As I said before, Brenda definitely was not the type to open up to anyone. She bottled everything up. And this act of opening up, if I may call it that, to this teacher was like a huge deal. Brenda confided in this teacher about all of the abuse she was experiencing at home as well as the substance abuse. And Brenda also expressed to this teacher that, you know, trigger warning everybody, I'm sorry, that she wanted to commit suicide and that she had been contemplating it seriously for a bit of time at that point. Okay. So in response to this, 
this teacher actually contacts Brenda's father, Wallace, and she tells him that she is very concerned about Brenda's mental state. She tells him about Brenda's suicidal thoughts and how she feels like that he, as in her father, needed to really seek out help in some way for Brenda. She was really urging him to get professional help for her. Mm -hmm. And Wallace's response to this is probably the exact one that you can imagine, but he is just immediately in complete denial of everything. Oh, my God. He's saying, yeah, my daughter's just a little sad, but she's fine. What teenager isn't a little sad? Like, he completely did not take this seriously at all. Thanks, Dad. It's like I said earlier, Brenda obviously did need help. Like, she needed it. And I do believe that if she would have gotten it, that this tragedy could have been prevented. I truly believe that. Right. Wallace stated that Brenda was just simply overdramatic. God, I hate that. It's later found out, too, that Brenda had attempted on more than one occasion to talk to her dad about how she was feeling. And that makes it that much more enraging. Yeah. She would express to him that she wanted to kill herself and that she was going to and that she was miserable, that she was unhappy. And Wallace would just completely deflect. He mm. would say that Brenda was just, again, being overdramatic and that he didn't believe for one second that Brenda would actually hurt herself or someone else. That's infuriating. Now... If you guys made it this far, then congratulations. I'm happy you're still with us. But <laughs> this is the point to where I'm going to give, again, a little pat on the back and give a little trigger warning. This is where the story is going to take us down a few notches, for sure. Um, I'm about to be talking a little more about the suicidal ideology and thoughts and also attempts with mm -hmm. Brenda. I'm also getting to the meat of the episode, the actual very sad events that took place in the story. So, yeah, just that little forewarning. We're about to trek down the mountain a little bit, kids. Yeah, don't bust your ass now. <laughs> <laughs> but Brenda started regularly attempting to take her own life. She would try to overdose herself by taking lots of various different pills and different combinations and mixing them with alcohol and other various things. Mm -hmm. Every attempt, however, would be unsuccessful. And this next part, which I think is... Again, get your shot glasses ready. Excruciatingly sad. But Brenda would state in her own words that every time she woke up, that she would just feel so much rage and anger about herself and her life. It's like she felt as if she could do nothing right. Mm. So when she would wake up each time after trying to commit suicide, she would just immediately just rage at herself because it's like in her mind, you know, one more thing that she just couldn't do right. Right. Which that's sad. Like, oh, my God, that's sad. Yeah, uh, Brenda was feeling defeated, lost, without purpose or happiness. She was just existing in this emptiness. Now, this next part just absolutely bends my brain. But that Christmas, Christmas of 1978, Brenda had simply just asked her dad if she could just have a radio. Mm. She asked for a radio for Christmas. And can you take a wild guess what she got? For Christmas from her dad, I'll give you a hint. It's not a radio. I was just about to say not a radio. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely not a radio. It was a rifle. Oh, wow. A 10-22 semi-automatic caliber rifle with a scope on it. I'll like, say it again. Thanks, Dad. Like, this rifle had telescopic what sight. The? Okay. Like, but even more so, like, your child has expressed several times to you that she wants to off herself. She's expressed that she's not okay. She's expressed. Right. And you're you're going to give yeah, this and, person and a rifle? You're literally, your daughter's going to say this to you, and you're going to get her a fucking rifle? Like, especially when she, when she asked for a radio, like, really, get the kid a radio. Like, like really. 
Like, okay, the money that he spent on the rifle, he could have got a radio. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Like, why not get the kid a radio? Like, Brenda, what the f- Brenda in no way expressed an interest in wanting a gun. She wanted a radio. And it's insane to me that he's heard her express these thoughts and these feelings and gets her a gun. Like, that's just, it's, it's mind-boggling to me. Yeah. And that's a little upsetting to process. And I can only begin to imagine how heartbreaking that was for Brenda, too. Now... That's about like going, oh, you you have suicidal thoughts? Well, let's see. Well, no, that's exactly you know? what I was about to say, actually. Brenda actually also later stated that she kind of felt like this gesture from her father was kind of like, in her mind, her dad basically saying, like, what you just said, go ahead here, just kill yourself. Here's the tool you need to do so. Wow. And that's dark. Like, it gets dark real quick. But yeah, Brenda got a rifle from her father. Now it's like the fucking nightmare before Christmas. <laughs> you mean like you mean like the a Christmas story where he gets like the the Red Rider BB gun or shotgun or whatever it was? Actually, I mean Tim Burton's <laughs> Nightmare Before Christmas because <laughs> you know how they got the scary presents instead of the the, the nice presents? Yes. <laughs> It, oh my goodness! I, it's I totally exactly like that. Yeah, yeah. I thought I thought you meant a Christmas story. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> but um, some people think that the whole thing with Brenda's dad giving her a rifle. A lot of people think that it's a case of extremely bad timing, like a bad coincidence. Oh, some others, no. yeah. Some others think that it was on purpose. But either way. It's like I said a couple of times now, the point that gets me overall is that your 16-year-old has expressed to you countless times that she's feeling hostile and suicidal. So, like, why in the fuck would you get her a gun? Like, for any reason after hearing that, you know? But whatever. Brenda actually took this gift, and she decided that she was going to start practicing with this rifle instead of committing suicide. She wanted to learn to shoot it. So she started going on these hunting trips with her father and he was teaching her how to hunt ducks and various other birds, as well as proper shooting technique. She was gradually just practicing more and more. She was especially practicing sniper technique. Oh, God. Brenda even started this routine where every day when she would get out of school, she would just go home, grab her rifle, and go to the backyard and just shoot at things. Birds, trees, squirrels, you know, everything. Target practice. And then there's that whole stereotype we can touch on where people that grow to become killers, they'll start by killing animals and practicing with killing animals before they eventually go on to kill real people. And I mean, that does kind of seem to be true here. I mean, Brenda is quite literally shooting birds, squirrels, like all the time, anything she can find pretty much. She's adamantly practicing with her rifle. She's learning sniper technique. And I mean, she's learning to shoot to kill. She's practicing for what she's about to do. Um, another huge red flag in this story in terms of how bad Brenda's mental health was, it drives the point of why did no one stop and help her even further home for me. But a few months before Brenda's infamous shooting, she actually burglarized Cleveland elementary and shot the windows out of the front of the school with a BB gun because at that time she hadn't yet received her 22 rifle. What? Like, completely normal teenage behavior, right? Like, there's no way in hell that any type of escalation is going to happen here. No nope, way. Nope, not here. Like, and even after this incident, Brenda's father still completely denied that Brenda was in need of any type of psychiatric help. He stated again that she was just still being overdramatic. 
At around 7.45 a.m. on Monday, January 29, 1979, a little over a month after Brenda was gifted this rifle, she actually calls out of school that day saying that she doesn't feel well. She tells her father this, which we definitely know by now that he just doesn't give a fuck about what she does. So he was just like, okay with it. And he went to work and left Brenda alone at home that day. Okay. Now, as I said earlier, Brenda and her father live directly across the street from Cleveland Elementary School. Now, Cleveland Elementary had this routine where about 15 minutes before school would actually start, the principal would come outside and unlock the gate that led into the school, and he'd let all of the kids in, and they would go to their classes. So before the principal would come outside to get the kids, they were all just standing outside. Mm -hmm. So while the kids are awaiting the principal to come unlock the gate, Brenda decides that she's going to release her rage. She opens up her window, grabs her loaded rifle, points it directly at all of the elementary students, and opens fire. She unleashes a complete sniper assault. Oh my God. As teachers and other staff members started hearing the gunshots, they all started running outside. And initially, they were thinking that maybe fireworks or something had been set off like anything. They did not initially hear these shots thinking, oh my God, someone is shooting at the school. Right. You know, it wasn't until they heard the sounds of people and children screaming that they realized it was gunshots. The principal, as well as some other staff members, got outside as quickly as they could to protect the students. Brenda Spencer fired 36 rounds into this group of school children and staff members. Mm. Cleveland Elementary Principal Burton Ragg was one of the first outside that day after he heard the shots. He was desperately trying to protect the children. And not long after he ran outside, Brenda shot him in the chest and killed him almost immediately. The school's custodian, a man named Michael Suchar, who was also known as Mr. Mike to the kids, he was one of the next outside to try and save everyone. I'm also pretty sure that he saw Principal Rag get shot and go down. So as he was running to help, he was also shot and killed by Brenda. Mm. And it's such a sad thing to hear, you know, like you hear so many stories and we see so many examples in the world today where it's clear that some people are doing their job because it's a job and they need the money and that's all it is to them. But then you hear something like this where he's running toward the danger. Yeah. Both this principal and this custodian ran to their death, trying everything they could do to help save those children. Like we all would hope that our children would be entrusted with someone who would be willing to do that for them, you know, but it's like, it's never expected. Right. But like, this is an example of that. And it's heartbreaking. Like, the utmost respect and gratitude to all the adults who stepped in, but especially these two, like they lost their lives protecting yeah. these children. Like it's, it's heavy. It's yeah. heavy shit. That's really bad. So both principal rag and really Mr. Bad, I was going to say, I just, I kind of choked up just now. Excuse me. <laughs> you're good. You're good. <laughs> so both principal rag and Mr. Mike were pronounced dead on the scene. They mm. were the only fatalities. Nine other people were injured during Brenda's assault Eight of those people being children, which luckily none of the kids were killed. Oh, great. Yeah, thank goodness. The remaining person that Brenda injured was actually one of the responding officers that were first to arrive on scene in the middle of the shooting. Brenda set her scope on him and shot him through his neck as he was attempting to help an injured child laying on the sidewalk. And miraculously, he survived. What? Yeah, he was shot in the neck by Brenda Spencer while with he a was rifle. with a rifle and he lived, but it did have a horrible repercussion. It ruined his career. He couldn't recover physically from the injury. I, I mean, I would think not, but Brenda's attack lasted 16 minutes 
before the officers drove a garbage truck in front of her house, kind of like providing a makeshift shield in between the school and Brenda's home. Right. And 16 minutes may not seem like a long time to us, but like, can you imagine? That's an eternity. That is an eternity in a situation like that. And it makes my stomach turn like I couldn't even begin to think about what was going through these poor kids' brains or, or the people too, like any of it. Like I couldn't imagine any of it. Continuous rifle assault for 16 minutes. Yeah. That is, it's wild. So police quickly figured out that the source of the shots was obviously Brenda's house, especially when the garbage truck pulled in front of it and blocked the shots. Needless to say, she was given away quite quickly. Right. Not long before the shooting was stopped by that garbage truck, the police had actually called SWAT forces in and they were given complete permission to shoot and kill Brenda on site if she didn't stop shooting. Like, this shit was bad. Like, bad, bad. That's how serious it got. Yeah. After Brenda had finished firing the 36 rounds into the school, she actually barricaded herself within her home. She locked all the doors and windows before the SWAT team had gotten there. The responding agents quickly armed themselves and stationed right outside of Brenda's home. They had surrounded her house, basically. Good. (laughs) It's like, knock, knock. Oh, Brenda. Sweetie, you fucked up. You fucked up. <laughs> you fucked up. Knock, knock, knock. FBI, open up. <laughs> now, an officer named Paul Olson was acting as the negotiator between authorities and Brenda. So they had all these armed agents surrounding her home. And then this Paul Olson guy was on the phone communicating with Brenda while she's barricaded inside of the house. And I think that's no small feat because, like, if you want to be honest, negotiators kind of fascinate me in a way. It's like, how do these people have the mental bandwidth to stay on the phone with people like this for hours like I know I couldn't do it. Especially after what they just did. Exactly. And he was on the phone negotiating with Brenda for over six hours. Wow. Trying to convince her to come outside. Like, the patience of this man is unreal. This whole ordeal with him negotiating with her started around, like, 8.30 a.m., and it didn't end until after 3 p.m., maybe even closer to 4. Now, while on the phone with Paul Olson over the several-hour period, Brenda is telling him all kinds of things. <sighs> she tells him, and this is rough, just a warning, Brenda said that the victims looked like a herd of cows gathering around those she had already shot. She said this made them easy pickings. Oh, my God. As in, she's saying when she would shoot someone, people would gather and try to run to them to help that person. And she said that essentially made it easier for her to shoot and pick them off. insane. Now, get this shit. Can you guess how Officer Olson actually ended up convincing Brenda to come outside? How? He promised to buy her a Whopper from Burger King if she came out. And she was like, fuck yeah, and came outside and surrendered herself. Okay, Whopper from Burger King, de-escalating situation. Yeah, I mean, it is what it is. Like, it's the king. The king swooped in and saved the day. Uh. (laughs) Hold on. So, so homeboy said, I'm going to get you a Whopper. And she just, okay. Yeah, no, for real. She was like, baby, you got a Whopper, baby, a Whopper. Why didn't you say something sooner? I would have came outside much sooner. You know, like it was it was one of those situations. She, and then she goes, I am not leaving this house until I see it with mine own eyes. So the FBI or the officer, dude, he's sitting there, pulls out a Whopper and he was like, you know, I keep that thing on me. Right. I'm telling you, like, and I actually that was a fact that I learned about the case later, like when I read and. Several of the articles that I read about this case, it literally said that she was promised a Whopper, and that is what convinced her to surrender (laughs) herself. Like, that's very real. Oh, my God. Well, I mean, that does make sense because, you know, considering the living conditions that she was living in, 
the poverty and the filth. Yeah, even though she we're laughing, never had a whopper. E- before. Even though we're laughing about it and trying to, you know, insert some comedic relief, it, it actually is kind of sad. You know, yeah. like it, it, this is it's sad. You she know? probably never had a whopper before, or not many, because I mean, she she came out, you know, ready to go. <laughs> so yeah, <I> will... <laughs> what was that? Takes glasses off. You said a what? <laughs> a whopper. A wh- 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 whopper. <laughs> But yeah, Brenda, she came outside after that, surrender herself. She was brought into custody and she would later be found guilty of two counts of first degree murder and one count of assault with a deadly weapon. She was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. Wow. So back to the current events of the story. When Brenda came outside and officers got into her house, they found empty liquor bottles everywhere, especially surrounding the mattress on the floor that Brenda shared with her father. They also found hundreds of rounds of ammunition everywhere Mm -hmm. just to kind of paint that image even more of what her home life was like and what she was dealing with. After Brenda's arrest, she had a few different statements in regards to what happened the morning of the shooting. Her first story was that she was watching TV that morning and all of a sudden she began hallucinating. She said that she had been drinking heavily the entire week leading up to and on the day of the shooting. That morning, she said that she had a lot of whiskey, taken some pills, and she also said that she smoked some weed laced with PCP. Oh, shit. She said that she hallucinated seeing, quote, combat outside, and that's when she felt the need to grab her rifle and start shooting. And on that part, I don't believe her. because I don't believe Because either. you look at comments she made while on the phone with the negotiator, such as, I liked seeing my victims run around. They looked like gathering cows, and it made them easy pickings and shit like that. And it's like, no, Brenda, you did not see combat outside. Absolutely if not. That, if that was the case, that's what you would have said on the phone. Right. You know what I'm saying? So I don't believe that at all. I think that's completely bullshit. And also, conveniently, any time she was interviewed after the shooting, like after she was arrested, she claims that she has no recollection of doing it whatsoever. And that, that that's a bit enraging. Yeah. That's a lie too. Now her other version of events as to why she did what she did, which before I even say this, I genuinely believe in my whole heart that this is the actual truth of the matter. Like, I think this is the truth and I'm just warning you guys, you know, again, take a shot. It's an, it's really sad and it's really dark. But, you know, we've discussed already that Brenda was clearly suicidal, clearly extremely depressed. There's no debating that at this point in the story. But Brenda said that the morning of the shooting, that her feelings of wanting to commit suicide were at a peak, basically. 16-year-old Brenda Ann Spencer said that she launched her sniper attack in the hopes that it would force the authorities to shoot her to death. Wow. Ending her misery. She was angry at society and the life that she had been forced to live, so she wanted to unleash her rage all at once, and she wanted it to immediately cost her her own life. Yeah, and that, that one sounds That like, sounds a lot more yeah. like, you know, the, the wheel of the truth to me. And, I mean, it's sad. And I don't know. You hear her say that because I watched this documentary that you guys can also watch. I'll leave the uh, link in the show notes. But it's an older documentary, but it really, really covers this case in depthly. And when I watched it and I heard her say that, like, I don't know how to explain it because she could just be really charming and wanting people to feel sorry for her. She could be a bullshitter. But there's just something about the sincerity in her sadness after the fact, like when she said that, like. It may have taken a while, but at one point, Brenda did start expressing some remorse. 
Okay. And I believe that when she said that, that it was the truth, that she did all of this in hopes that it would just get her shot to death. She wanted to kill herself in that way. Yeah. So while in prison, Brenda received extensive psychiatric evaluation, and it was actually found that due to an accident she had when she was younger, she had fallen off her bike or something. She actually sustained an injury to her temporal lobe. Okay. And this can explain a lot. And yes, for those listening, I did go the extra mile and I researched exactly what the temporal lobe controls. Uh, The main functions of the temporal lobes, because you have two sides, you have one side that controls understanding language, memory acquisition, face recognition, object recognition, movement, and the perception and processing of auditory information. Mm -hmm. And then you have the other side, which controls like your logical thinking and decision making, your understanding wrong from right, like all of that stuff. Uh, Brenda also, if I haven't added it in yet, she had epilepsy and oh, she, okay. yeah, and she did have to take seizure medication, uh, anti-seizure medication, excuse me. Well, there's this statistic that epilepsy is four times more common in violent offenders than it is in non-violently behaving people. So there's a little connection here. She had an injury to her temporal lobe. Mm-hmm. She had epilepsy. And regardless of what story we put behind it, she obviously did become very prone to violence. It's just one of those things that kind of makes sense, you know, like that temporal lobe injury could have been a factor in this, too. I mean, as well Did as they it, say, like what side of the temporal lobe was damaged. Um, I couldn't read for sure. I think both because okay. it just stated, you know, like she had temporal lobe injury. I couldn't find exactly which side or both, but she had the injury nonetheless. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that injury could have been a factor in this as well as everything else that Obviously, she was dealing with that definitely played a factor, too. It's it's just one of those things that was found. It was proven that she did have that injury. Now, over the years, Brenda has had several parole hearings. And at one of them, a tattoo that she had gotten in prison was brought up specifically. Uh, Brenda evidently had like this romantic relationship going and then it didn't go well and it ended. So she got a tattoo across her chest that some people believe says pride and courage. Okay. Which is like, um, no, Brenda. And I say believes because she got it in runes. So I think it was one of the uh, parole officers at this trial. He was like, so why do you have pride and courage tattooed across your chest, Brenda? And now this is sad if it's true. It definitely paints this image of Brenda Spencer's personal hill a uh-huh. bit more for us. But Brenda replied to this question saying that she believed the tattoo was done wrong but that it was supposed to say unforgiven and alone. Oh, wow. And I watched this footage like specifically it's in the documentary. And like when you hear Brenda say that to him, she just, I don't know. She seems so sincere about it. It's gripping. Like it's one of those instances in which you hear the pain and emptiness in her voice. And she's just so matter of fact about it. And like, she's not being condescending or rude at all either. Just, what seems to be honest. Right. And I don't know, like I kind of believe she was telling the truth about it. Like in, in the footage after she says unforgiven and alone, it kind of like zooms in on her eye and you see a tear Mm. drop out of her eye. I mean, it's sad. And I feel the need to say again, I've already told you guys I was going to say it five or six times because I feel the need to reiterate it, but I'm not defending what she did. I'm not defending this this shooting. I'm not defending her actions. I'm I'm not defending any of it because you can't. It's one of the most cruel things I've ever heard of. But like 
this whole case is completely a nurture thing. Kind of like how we discussed in Edmund Kemper's case. Like the nature versus nurture. Yes. The quote monster that is Brenda Spencer was a created one. She was a neglected child. She was suffering. She was showing dangerously clear signs that she really, really needed help. And no one would help her in any way. I mean, the duality of this case is mind bending. And you just you have to take those things into account, too, you know. Right. Now, the victims of the shooting that survived, as well as the family members of those who did not, have been incredibly outspoken at Brenda's parole hearings in terms of them not wanting Brenda to be released, which that little tidbit in itself is kind of chilling because you have to think those kids are now adults. Right. And they are all still very traumatized by what took place the morning of January 29th. Uh, Wilfred Suchar, who is the son of the custodian that was killed, Mike, Mr. Mike, he asked at one of Brenda's parole hearings, quote, what happens if there's another boring Monday for her? Right. And That's what I want to know. that gives me chills. And I mean, that is the reason she stated before anything else. Brenda said when she was asked why she did this, I don't like Mondays and that it livened up the day. So, I mean, can you blame him? Like, his father was shot and killed by her. I mean, what would happen if she found herself on the doorstep of another boring Monday, you know? Right. Is she going to kill somebody else? I mean, you have to think about that, because, I mean, that's dead-ass what she said. And it's not going to matter, like, where they have her housed. Like, if she gets that in her head again... Then it could be dangerous. Yeah, right. Like it was the first time. Uh, Principal Rag's daughter, she stated, quote, and this is sad... People have told me that I look like him, act like him, and my kids are the spitting image of him. When the children hear this, they cannot possibly relate to such sentiments because they never met their grandfather. And they know that they never will because I've had to tell them over and over and over again that he's dead. I've had to tell them over and over again that my father and their grandfather were shot and murdered by Brenda Spencer. End quote. Like, chills over my whole body. Like, that makes me want to cry. Like... The impact from Brenda's actions, even decades later, still traumatizes and horribly impacts so many lives each and every day. And I don't know. It makes my brain kind of want to hold my heart's hair back so it can puke, you know? (laughs) (laughs) It's awful. It's just one of those things. Get it all out. Now, a woman uh, named Crystal Hardy, who was one of the kids that were shot by Brenda on that awful day in 1979, Mm -hmm. is now very much an adult. And she states, quote, Every day of my life, I am still terrified that someone is pointing a gun at me while I'm just walking around or doing anything. I was just at school. I had no idea that I was going to get shot. End quote. Oh. She also recants a story where her boyfriend had recently invited her to a shooting range. And she accepted to go because she was thinking in her mind, you know, maybe enough time has passed. She thought that she had maybe healed enough and she wanted to kind of face her fear per se. Yeah. Well... She said that the minute that the first shot was fired, she immediately broke down uncontrollably crying and shaking and, and like everything. It was so bad that she had to be carried off the range. It, wow. it in fact, had not been enough time for her. And, like, that's sad that she yeah. is still that deeply traumatized. Yeah. Uh, Brenda's most recent parole hearing was actually this year on August 11th, 2022. So, literally a little over a month ago. Okay. And this hearing, uh, Brenda was denied parole. And she was scheduled for her next parole hearing in 2025. She's currently 61 years old. (music) 
And that concludes the case of Brenda Ann Spencer. That was wild. Yeah, it's like I said in the beginning. Now Another that, shot. It was really sad. <laughs> it was extremely sad. And there's also even, I didn't mention it earlier, but there's actually a, a really famous song that was written about this case. Um, it's called I Don't Like Mondays by the Boomtown Rats. Yeah, I know that song. Yeah, that's about the Brenda Ann Spencer case, and I learned that recently, too, so I went and listened to it, and I mean, I mean, it's a song. It's it's definitely about her. <sighs> yeah, it's, it's kind of wild. Beware of the lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, what are your thoughts on the case now that you've had the details of I, it? Because I know you were familiar with it, but... I wish that... I mean, as I said before, generations are always going to be different, but I just wish that someone would have listened and that someone would have done something and that would have prevented the loss of two people. Yeah. And, you know, all of the other people that could have died. And that were traumatized and still that injured. That should have died considering yeah. their injuries. And, you know, it's just, it's wild. Yeah, it's, it's really sad. Wild. It's sad. She's currently in her sixties and scheduled to go up for parole again. Did like they I say, said, like why they denied the parole? Uh, I think it's under the grounds that they just still feel like that she's a potential threat to society. Wow. Like it's like that whole note we made earlier when uh, Mike Suchar's son said, you know, like what if there's another boring Monday for her? Like they they still deem her as as a threat. They haven't deemed her, you know safe right to be back into society God, i guess so that's crazy. i guess that's the only ruling but yeah she's she's been in there her whole life like literally 16 and now she's 61 so i mean it's a lot and yeah. like i said uh before the outro started uh she's going up for parole again in 2025 so so, so yeah. in 2025 i would say that we're still going to be doing this and if we find out anything, then we'll update. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll have to do a case update. So, Of course we'd have to. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode, you guys. We loved being here and doing this as always. We appreciate you listening. And if you want to follow me and Ray and all of our weird, well, yeah. you can certainly do that. You, <laughs> you can, can find us on Facebook at Gore Report, a true crime podcast. On Instagram at Gore Report Podcast. And Twitter at Gore Report. So, um, <laughs> yeah, we're going to go cry and watch anime, play Animal Crossing and uh, get their shit off our minds. So uh, we love you guys. Bye. Love you. Bye. Bye. Shut me.